Hey everybody, Laszlo Montgomery here. But thinking about getting some intro music, maybe spruce up the CHP a little in 2017. Please write me if you feel strongly about it, one way or another. A few of you over the years have actually expressed your thanks to me about not having any intro music. Let me say right away, prior to beginning my research on William Mesny, I had never heard of him. One of my listeners, one of my favorite countries, Brazil, never been there though, introduced me to Mesny through a link to an article written in The Diplomat by David Lefman. I read it, and at once put the topic I was working on aside and helicoptered this one to next up, and to show you what a decent guy I am. To usher in 2017, I'm releasing both part one and part two at the same time. After reading the article, I kept thinking, how come in all my readings and all the hundreds of millions of hours I've been working on these podcasts, why had I never heard of this person? David Lefman also wrote this biography of Mesny that I bought on Amazon and read cover to cover. It came out in early 2016 from the Hong Kong-based publisher Blacksmith Books. It's called The Mercenary Mandarin, How a British Adventurer Became a General in Qing Dynasty China. My ears always perk up whenever I come across figures like Mesny, foreigners who went to China in the 19th century. Maybe that's what compelled me to launch the China Vintage Hour. Today's episode has a few takeaways for you. One of them is that this same passion, interest, and wonder so many like myself have for China, Chinese culture, is nothing new. People who aren't Chinese, who came in contact with the culture have been hooked and mesmerized going back to the earliest days of the Han Dynasty when Silk Road trade brought distant civilizations into contact with China for the first time. And for 2,000 years, ever since those most ancient of evenings back in the Han Dynasty, the time of the Roman Republic and Empire, Western people have been coming into contact with China, been profoundly impacted by what they saw, and like me, like many of us, they couldn't leave. They made it the centerpiece of their life. The, quote, lure of China, as Dr. Frances Wood titled her 2009 book, Chinese Culture, it was like some magnetic force that many who came to China from the West embraced, despite its strangeness and unfamiliarity. I dedicate a fair chunk of my day following all the writings of all my favorite China-watching stars of the 21st century. I read all their books and blogs and columns, and I can't get enough of listening to the, you know, China-hand elder statesmen who went to China in the late 1960s and 70s. But few things give me a greater thrill than reading about the Westerners who lived in China during the Qing Dynasty. Kindred spirits from 100, 200 years ago. And today we're going to discuss one of these guys. In examining the life of William Mesny, we can go back and revisit a period in Chinese history we're all familiar with that serves as a kind of ghost of China's past that sometimes haunts us in the 21st century with regard to certain issues that affect China and the Western powers. These were the years of China's century of humiliation, the Bainian culture. It was a period of shame for such a great nation as China. We remember many of the A-list historical figures who came out of this era and recall these names that are indelibly 
printed in the China history books and mentioned many times in this humble podcast program. But there were also a multitude of B and C players who are rather unknown, but got a little bit of shine on them for one reason or another during their China careers. Their 15 minutes of China fame. But for the most part, no one remembers them today. The books they wrote, the businesses they built, or the causes they maybe died for in China. Many of us today who live and work in China or have China careers, a hundred years from now, some of us will be remembered, most won't. If not for his four-volume work that survives as one of the thousands of antiquarian sources written during the Qing Dynasty, he'd be just another forgotten name from that time. He lived almost his entire life in China, a life we'll examine together, and then in his old age he wrote about it in all the minutiae of his travels, experiences, meetings, encounters with, you know, the likes of Li Hongzhang and others. It's all contained in a forgotten work called Mezni's Chinese Miscellany. William Mesny was born 98 years to the day before John Lennon on October 9th, 1842. Two months after the signing of the Treaty of Nanjing, he was born in the Channel Islands. We here in Southern Cali have our own Channel Islands off the coast of Oxnard and Santa Barbara. But William Mesny wasn't from those Channel Islands. He was from the Ile de la Manche, the Channel Islands that are off the French coast of Normandy and are made up of the islands of Jersey, Guernsey, and Alderney, as well as other smaller islands. These Channel Islands are a British crown dependency and have a history that goes back as far as the Song Dynasty in China. Mesny was born in Jersey, but grew up on Alderney. His mother was an invalid, and his father was a Methodist preacher, which is to say he came from a poor family. When the British government began building military installations on Alderney, Mesny, all of eight years old, quit primary school and went to work as a good old-fashioned child laborer, hauling whatever he was capable of hauling at the work site and earning an income in any way he could. By 1854, the work had all dried up, and Mesny was by now a wizened 12-year-old, ready to start his life as a sailor. On a whim, he joined the crew of a cutter called the Napier. Not sure if it was named for the Lord Napier who perished on Macau in October 1834 and whose death helped spark the Opium War. So the adventure began over the next five years, the remaining years of his childhood. He served as a cabin boy aboard a number of vessels that gave him the chance to see the world. He traveled the globe visiting many continents, his eyes open to the splendor that the world had to offer. Mesny remained a religious man his whole life, but he was no saint. He was as rough and tough as anyone you might expect who left school at eight and started toiling side by side with some similar rough sorts, though much his senior. An altercation of some sort whilst in Sydney almost landed him in an Australian prison there, but he was able to wiggle out of his predicament, and from that point... His China life began. He found work on a vessel bound for Shanghai. He jumped ship when he landed, and I guess he liked it in China because he decided to stay for the next 56 years. 
Mesny's main reason for deserting his post and checking out the opportunities in 1860 Shanghai were the same as countless unnamed adventurers and mercenaries. There was money to be made, joining in the fray and signing up to fight against the Taiping rebels. Mesny had a bit of a rough start, got addicted to opium, and found himself in a bit of trouble. So he took a ship sailing south along the coast and ended up in Hong Kong in April 1861. Not quite 20 years old yet, he got a job working at Victoria Prison for a short stint that ended in February 1862. Mesny then quit Hong Kong and headed back to Shanghai. The Taipings by this time were camped outside of Shanghai, and things were looking like they were going to storm the city. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, launched by founder Hong Xiu-chen, began 11 years earlier in Guangxi. The Taiping Rebellion started off as just another local uprising, but it went from zero to 60 much faster than anyone anticipated. It expanded from Guangxi to Hunan, and then once they reached the Yangtze River, at served as a conveyor belt that led the Taiping rebel army eastwards towards the direction of Shanghai. After Hong Xiuquan's army had taken Nanjing, the Taiping set up their base there. 1856, however, saw the beginning of the end, but this ending would drag on for some of the bloodiest years Chinese history would ever record. By the time Hong Xiuquan, self-styled younger brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the time he committed suicide on July 1st, 1864, during the height of the American Civil War, 20 million people would perish from this earth. And our hero, William Mesny, jumped right into the fray as soon as he arrived back in Shanghai. Earlier in 1860, after Mesny had first arrived, the Taipings had launched their eastern campaign and planned to take Shanghai. Many of you have heard the name of the American Frederick Townsend Ward before. Well, this is where he wrote his name into the history books. He had put together a ragtag army of about 70 mercenaries who became known as Ward's Forces. Later, they would become part of a force organized and trained by Ward called the ever-victorious army, the Changsheng Jun. They fought back against the Taiping rebels and established a reputation for their effectiveness as a fighting force. It was in October of 1860 that the Second Opium War ended and the foreigners finally got off the fence and lined up with the Qing government against the rebels. With all their new gains snatched and grabbed from China in the latest treaty, it was in the interests of the foreign powers to prop the emperor up as long as possible until they couldn't do it anymore. The Taipings, well, they were shaping up to be not good for business. Right about here is where Li Hongzhang enters the picture. Anyone mildly familiar with modern Chinese history has heard that name many times before. Viceroy of Zhirli, Hu Guang and Liang Guang, signer of a few of China's more humiliating unequal treaties, and for a long stretch, China's face to the West. He was the backer of Frederick Townsend Ward's ever-victorious army, and the one who hired Ward at what was at the time the highest rank a foreigner had ever achieved in the Chinese military. So where did young William Mesny fit into all this? He was rather impressed with what Ward had accomplished, and he was jonesing for a shot to join in the fight against the Taipings. He was looking for some action on the front lines, but what he ended up doing instead was becoming a blockade runner. Do you remember the movie The Gauntlet? 
Clint Eastwood starred and directed in this 1977 hit. That's what these blockade runners did. They made this cannonball run from Shanghai to Hanko to deliver cargo back and forth. Usually this was weapons and materiel related to the war effort. But there were also plenty of raw materials and merchandise, too. And to keep the supply chain going, generous fees were offered to anyone interested to play the Clint Eastwood role, so to speak. The reason was because the Yangtze was locked down tight. This was where the Qing military was going at it head-to-head against the Taipings. River traffic was seriously affected, and no matter whose side you were on or whom you supported, a captain could have his vessel seized by either adversary, not to mention pirates. His crew could be killed and himself ransomed, if he was lucky. But that was the essence of these blockade running missions. Someone had to captain the vessel and sail it to Wuhan alive. The idea was, don't get killed or captured by the Qing, the Taipings, or the pirates. In some ways, it was like being one of those baby marine iguanas trying to outrun those dozens of snakes on the beach. But many made it, and word got out that it could be done. And as I said, the payoff wasn't too bad. So, March 1862, Mesny, 20 years old, took his first shot, making a six-week run, hauling some smuggled salt to Wuhan. Well, he made it, but the voyage was one close call after another. Sailing up river on the Yangtze gave Mesny courtside seats to view what 20 million deaths looks like. That's a lot of headless corpses, skeletal remains, and death and devastation. It was very conspicuous. Once, thriving cities were reduced to cinders, and the inhabitants forced to flee if they survived at all. Mesny sailed past them all on his way to Wuhan. So Mesny made a nice score and got paid handsomely for his efforts. Word got out about his voyage, and before long, one of the local businessmen there offered 120 bucks to sail his cargo junk back to Shanghai. Mesny took the offer and went through the same gauntlet as before. It was no less fraught with danger going back in the other direction. He was captured by imperial forces just outside Nanjing, but made a daring escape thanks to some assistance from British forces. After getting his ship back, Mesny resumed his voyage, and after joining a large convoy that offered safety in numbers, he made it alive to Shanghai. His record was 2-0. and He was feeling on top of the world after such a daring adventure. Afterwards, Mesny threw himself into learning the art of warfare, particularly weaponry. With not even a primary school education, Mesny nonetheless had a very highly developed and experienced mechanical mind. He spent the rest of his life around military hardware and engaged in arms sales on and off his entire career. He was handy with a gun and knew how to train someone else how to use them. Feeling invincible, Mesny took on another Shanghai-Wuhan run in July 1862. Like before, he had a few scrapes with pirates and outrunning his pursuers, but he extended his win-loss record to 3-0. Especially after the death of Frederick Townsend Ward in September 1862, the idea of putting a foreigner or two in your employ became a hot thing to do. Mesny took notice of this and saw a potential upswing in his share price. In October 1862, it took on another blockade-running job. This fourth attempt turned out to be not as lucky as the other three. 
outside of Zhenjiang. Mezny's convoy wasn't quick enough to outrun a flotilla of Taiping vessels, and he got captured. Mezny's ransom started off at a hundred grand, which even today isn't chump change. Mezny, well, let me say this, he had a gift for the gab. Within two weeks, he had charmed his Taiping captors sufficiently enough whereby they made him one of their own, complete with honorary Taiping Tianguo costume, including the red sash and headdress. While he was amusing the Taipings who were holding him, the British had search parties out looking for him. When the British and French were still sitting on the fence regarding which side to support in the Civil War, the Taiping rebels didn't mess with them. But now that the foreign powers had thrown their lot in with the Qing dynasty, they stopped all this neutrality business. But in Mezny's case, I guess they didn't want any unnecessary trouble. So they moved him to Suzhou, which at the time was still in Taiping rebel hands. Mezny pulled into Suzhou in December. This is still 1862. He was still being held captive, but had insinuated himself into the Taiping circle of officers who were watching him and made himself useful to them in a variety of ways, including repairing some of their weaponry. Next, Mezni was moved to Baoying in northern Jiangsu, just north of Yangzhou, so I'm sure he wasn't lacking for good fried rice while he was there. In February of 1863, the Qing imperial forces were moving in for the kill. Mezni got to suffer, along with his... Taiping captors as the excruciating final months ticked by. The rebels holding Mezny decided to make a last-ditch attempt to break out of Baoying and head south to Nanjing and make a final stand. Suffering from a bout of malaria, one of the many diseases to choose from amidst all the rot and death everywhere up and down the Yangtze River, he almost died along the way and was in and out of consciousness, but when he came to a week later... He was already in the Taiping capital of Nanjing, in the middle of a brutal, sickening siege. Five months into Mezny's captivity, he managed to sneak a letter out to the British authorities that managed to find its mark. And when they came calling with their gunboats demanding Mezny's release, the rebels opted to let him go rather than risk getting bombarded. And here, reluctantly I may add, Mezny left his ad hoc comrades of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. His sympathies lie more with them than the foreign powers. Mezny hadn't been in China for that long, but he was there long enough to be of the mind that the place was due for a total makeover. And as far as the whole bizarre interpretation of Jesus and Christianity, well, Mezny felt that that would be sorted out later. Afterwards, a few people will knock on Mezny's door to try and enlist him in their fight against the Taipings. But after all he had just gone through and after getting to know them, he avoided any conflict fighting against them. This included an offer from Charles George Chinese Gordon, who took over leadership of the ever-victorious army after Ward met his painful end. By the end of 1863, it was already inevitable that the Taipings were done for. Suzhou fell in December, and you had that famous incident with Chinese Gordon and Li Hongzhang. Gordon had negotiated a surrender that allowed for the rebels to be allowed to live, sort of like what just went down in Aleppo, Syria. But then as soon as Li Hongzhang and his army moved into Suzhou, they slaughtered them all, and Gordon, well, 
Let's just say he didn't take it too well. And this brouhaha was all discussed in that old Robert Hart episode, CHP 58. July 1st, 1864, the self-proclaimed kid brother of Jesus Christ, Hong Xiuquan himself, finally took his strange, tortured, and weird life and put it out of its misery. This movement he was responsible for launching caused a lot of suffering and death, not to mention it was one hell of a distraction to the government when they were back on their heels with the Western powers. July 19, 1864, Nanjing fell to imperial forces after yet another hideous siege. The imperial stormtroopers rid the city of any and all Taiping elements in a manner so vicious and merciless that it served as an appropriate exclamation point to what was one of the greatest man-made cataclysms in world history. While all of this was happening, Mesny found work in Hanko. He had accepted a post working for the Imperial Maritime Customs Service at 70 bucks a month. He was bored out of his mind in no time at all, sitting at a desk. Hanko was booming at this time. The whole Wuhan area, Wuchang, Hanko, and Hanyang, served as a kind of central merchandise mart for all of the China interior. Chongqing, too. And considering about 90% of the China population, still the world's largest, lived in the interior, you could say it was a pretty nice-sized market. Shanghai and the other treaty port areas grab most of the headlines as far as the economic history of these times, but there was a whole world going on in the interior as far as foreign investment in trade, war, and religion. So Mesny expended no small amount of effort in trying to make a score here and there, trying his hand at all kinds of businesses. Throughout most of his life, Mesny had quite a high burn rate when it came to money. He was always a hustler, and his head was filled with ideas, and he saw opportunities all around him. But it was his warrior spirit that often led him to gravitate towards a fight. Mesny got a small taste of another violent rebellion that wafted into Hanko while he was there. Y'all might recall the Nian Rebellion, the Nianjun Qiyi. It was an anti-Manchu-based uprising that, like the Taiping Rebellion, got bigger than anyone expected it would get. The Nian Rebellion lasted from 1851 to 1868. That was one thing about the second half of the 19th century. There were no shortages of upheavals, famines, and natural disasters. The Nian Rebellion was mostly a northern China thing, but central China got a taste too, and Mesny got to see it. Besides the Nian, there was also the Dungan Revolt in the northwest, the Muslim Rebellion in the southwest, and the one we'll get to shortly, the Miao Rebellion, mostly in Guizhou. Mesny's brother John joined him in China around this time. He got a job, too, at the Customs Service, and this sibling wasn't the rambling man that his older brother William was. He stayed put in this position for most all of his long China career. But William Mesny, he was restless, watching all the opportunities and adventures going on right before him. He felt a lifelong frustration about the failures of his formidable skill set to deliver that golden ring to him. Fame, fortune, and respectability. He was itching for some action. The way Mesny sized things up, the military was where he belonged, and where he got his biggest thrill. 
an opportunity knocked one day in the form of Zhou Zhongtang. Yes, immortalized in Jennifer Eight Lee's fine flick, Searching for General Zhou. As hiring Westerners was a thing at the time, General Zhou, Zhou Zhongtang, made an offer to Mesny for a post that would have allowed him to see some action fighting the Dungans in Xinjiang. But alas, bureaucratic wrangling got in the way, and Mesny had to sit this one out. But then in May 1868, French trader-adventurer extraordinaire Jean Dupuis walked into Mesny's life. Dupuis later on would have a hand in being an agent provocateur up in North Vietnam. His actions would lead to France's later control of Vietnam. I'm not sure how it worked back in 19th century China, but I imagine in these far-flung places, foreigners, even without the convenience of the World Wide Web, always tended to know where to find each other. Dupuis told Mesny, remember Mesny was born right off the coast of France in Jersey, so French was his mother tongue. Uh, Dupuis told him that the Sichuan army was hiring and that he had an in with them and they were looking for people exactly like Mesny. And what military adventure was the Sichuan army mixed up with? They were put in charge by the emperor to go deal with the Miao Rebellion. Now, we didn't dive too deep into the Miao Rebellion before, except to mention that it was one of several mid-19th century upheavals going on concurrently in China. In these histories of this time, the term Miao was sort of a catch-all term to describe certain ethnic minority people, mostly concentrated in Guizhou province, but Hunan as well. Here in the United States, we know these people very well. The Miao are all around us, especially if you live in California, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. We know them as the Hmong, H-M-O-N-G. They came to this country, mostly from Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. I don't have too much personal experience with Miao people, but they wear beautiful garments and produce gorgeous handicrafts. They look so peaceful and innocent. There were three uprisings that all got big enough to be called the Miao Rebellion. The first one was short, 1735-1736. The second one, much longer, 1795-1806. And now again, for a third time, longer still, 1854-1873. And this was the one that Mesny was involved in. So he got to play a walk-on role in the Taiping Rebellion, duck and cover from the Nian Rebellion, narrowly missed out fighting the Dongguns, and now he gets to see action in yet another one of China's catastrophic rebellions. This was another one of those things where it's impossible to know with any certainty how many lives were lost in the mountains and hills of Guizhou. Let's just say that total deaths from the Miao Rebellion ran north of four million. All of these uprisings, I guess you can assume we're all due to the problems we've all come to know in our day. It was during the Ming Dynasty that Chinese forces asserted control of this beautiful backwoods province of Guizhou. Ever since that started happening, the Miao had been fighting imperial forces, especially when it appeared that they were fixing to stay a while. Mesny describes the extent of their fighting abilities and the kind of things they did to the Chinese after they captured them. It was pretty brutal, scary stuff. Both sides were utterly horrified with each other's methods of beheading and defiling corpses. So, thanks to Jean Dupuis, Mesny gets a posting as a military instructor. This time, Mesny didn't bow to any of the 
tiresome rules regarding permits and whatnot. He knew he wasn't supposed to be roaming free outside the treaty port area, but he went anyway. June 18, 1868, 74 years before Sir Paul was born, William Mesny boarded a vessel that was sailing west up the Yangtze. He was Sichuan-bound, heading towards Chongqing. He faced down the same dangers everyone else did, who passed through the Three Gorges and got a first-hand look at the ancient historic sites along this river. He reported for duty, and his first orders sent him to Zunyi, Guizhou's second-largest city, and as most CHP listeners know, the place where Chairman Mao would rise to the top of the food chain and the Communist Party of China 67 years later. On uh, September 21, 1868, Mesny was sworn in to the Sichuan army that was led by Tang Jiong. Tang paid him 150 silver tails per month. Mesny was given the rank of lieutenant, though Mesny would up that a notch and tell everyone he was captain. The Sichuan army fought in consort with the Hunan army to defeat the Miao. Mesny did his job well, managing the armory, training the troops in artillery tactics, and even leading troops. Mesny, it was said, fought side by side in the thick of the battle and had killed more than 250 Miao rebels. He did what he was hired to do, bring this detachment of less than 10,000 men up to snuff with modern Western weapons and fighting techniques. Despite being chronically ill with every kind of disease that the mountains of Guizhou could throw at him, Mesny got himself noticed by Tang Jiong, proving himself useful in a hundred different ways. And by the end of 1868 and into 1869, the tide was starting to turn. But it would be a few years before the Miao would finally be brought to their knees. The Hunan and Sichuan armies would try everything, but as I said, the Miao people were no pushovers. Besides having the home field advantage, they also knew how to use modern weapons themselves. Because Guizhou in the 19th century was such a far-flung place with a mountainous terrain, it presented a whole slew of logistical problems. Mesny went hungry and suffered other deprivations, just like every other common foot soldier fighting in this war. But this was the chance Mesny had been waiting for. He was in his element, it seemed. When it was all over, thanks to Tang Chiong, he had acquired a name for himself and traded on his newfound repute as the foreign advisor who fought gallantly with the Sichuan army against the Miao and Guizhou. He had received a number of honors and was recognized by the China top brass, including Zhou Zongtang. He was given the title of Provincial Superintendent of Foreign Arms, an official posting that effectively meant Mesny was a Mandarin, complete with all the titles and garments worn by someone of this rank. During this bloody war going on in Guizhou province, Mesny began sending dispatches to the English newspapers in Shanghai about what was going on there. Mind you, he didn't even finish primary school, but he had a gift in telling stories and reporting news. These dispatches from the front not only provided eyewitness news about what was going on in Guizhou, they were used by Mesny as an effective propaganda tool to pump himself up and advertise his gallantry in front of the foreign community. Yeah, Mesny proved his worth with Tang Jiong, which was the whole point in hiring him. Though his training didn't lead to a quick defeat of the Miao, he most certainly helped the Chinese armies make headway against one stubborn and hard-to-defeat enemy. 
But by the summer of 1872, after a couple of sieges that sapped the spirit of the Meow Fighters, it started to wind down at last. By the end of 1873, it was over. But there was still plenty of action going on in China. Mezny next got to witness mopping up operations from the anti-Qing Muslim rebellion in Yunnan that had spilled over into Guizhou. In this particular uprising, over a million people lost their lives. It lasted from 1856 to 1873. And sometimes we wonder why the imperial court didn't pay attention to reform. <laughs> Talk about distractions. Mezny made himself at home in Guizhou province. This was the province where he spent most of his career and where he made his mark. He always found Guizhou to be a place brimming with possibilities, just like some entrepreneurs felt when they'd visit the interior of China in the 1990s. It had nowhere to go but up. And he tried his hand at almost everything. His dream was to connect this backwater to the China coast through railroads and steam navigation. That would be his Moby Dick, his, his Maltese Falcon. Regrettably for Mesny, though, his infrastructural goals would remain the stuff dreams are made of, for him anyway. You see, for Mesny, when many of his ideas finally got implemented, he was never in on the deal. Either he knew the obvious and no one needed his advice, or others listened to what he had to say and then made it happen later on, without Mesny. That was part of the story of his life. He solicited investors, but either they were already making too much money in eastern China, or they didn't like the well-known hardships of doing business in the China interior. In early 1874, Mesny designed and supervised the construction of a chain-link suspension bridge that spanned the Chong'an River. And here we are, over 140 years later. Mesny's bridge is still there, in use. In October 1874, he went to Hankou, married his Chinese bride at the British consulate, and then en route to Hankou, he met a gentleman named David Hill, who wrote to his father in England about Mesny. He's not important, but let me read this to you. It offers a quick snapshot of Mesny from someone who ran into him. Quote, The other day, Mr. William Mesny, a colonel in His Imperial Majesty's service, spent an evening at my house. He had been, for the last six years, quite away from all formal society, except that now and then he has seen the Roman Catholic missionaries in the province of Guizhou. He speaks Chinese like a native and appears to be a true Christian. His parents are Methodists in Jersey or Guernsey, and I doubt not follow their son with their prayers. Being a Mandarin, he has access to a higher grade of society than we have. He tells me of several officials with whom he has had conversations bearing on Christianity and personal Christian experience. Baptized with the Spirit, he may be made of great service in the work of God in this country. He is now on his way to Shandong, the governor of which province has applied for his services. He is well up in the minutiae of Chinese etiquette, which so few foreigners care to learn. He has married a Chinese lady, and this gives him access to the families of officials. End quote. Indeed, Mesny did visit Shandong. In Jinan, the provincial capital, he met with Ding Bao Chen, who would soon begin serving as governor of Sichuan province. What Zhuo Zongtang was to General Zhuo's chicken, 
Ding Bao Zhen was the Gong Bao Ji Ding. Yes, Kung Pao Chicken, as they call it in Tinseltown, was a dish that, well, if you believe what they say, was named for Ding Bao Zhen, who once served in the capacity of palace guardian, or Gong Bao. Anyway, just saying. Mesny believed, and rightly so, I might add, that the real lucrative deals were in the hinterlands, and you needed to court the regional officials. These were the guys he was always chasing. Just like you see today, back in 1870s China, the place was crawling with foreigners, trying to get in on some of the riches to be had. Western banks were floating loans all over the place, and the Qing government was hot to upgrade their armaments, build infrastructure, and do whatever they could to make some semblance of a great leap forward. For this reason, Western experts made a killing contracting themselves out to advise on every kind of project you can imagine. And Mesny was one of these guys. He figured he had all these years in China, knew the language, culture, had titles, had military rank. Doors should be opening all around him. Sometimes he got FaceTime with the deciders. Sometimes he was rebuffed. But there was a common thread that ran through all these disappointments. Things just didn't pop for him. The things he really wanted to do, no one would take him seriously. Well, at least not at that time. Mesny returned to Guizhou at the end of 1875 to take up a post at the arsenal there. But he got bored doing that, and out of nowhere, he took on a job as a guide and interpreter to one of the great adventurer-explorers in the 19th-century British tradition, Captain William Gill. And we're going to hit the stop button here and pick up in part two with this adventure taken by Mesny and Gill from Sichuan to Burma. It was a big deal in its day. So, that's it for part one. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off for the first time in 2017 from an undisclosed underground location somewhere in the eastern part of the capital of Southern California, the City of Angels. More William Mesny for you in part two. Take care, everyone.